Listener Production. A warning. This episode contains graphic descriptions of sexual assault and violence against women. If this content does affect you, the number for Lifeline is 13 11 14. If you're concerned for your own or someone else's safety, call 1-800-RESPECT. If you're in Australia and it's an emergency, dial triple zero. Please listen with care. G'day, I'm former police officer Brent Sanders. And for the past 25 years, I've dedicated myself to sharing what I've learnt on the force to the Australian public so they can better protect themselves from falling victim to crime. So with the help of some of the most respected current and former detectives and high-ranking law enforcement agents, we're going to pull back the curtain on what life is like on the force and what they've learned about how crime and criminals really work. These are real stories from real detectives. This week, the current head of the New Zealand Police Association, Chris Carhill. This was a really interesting case, and without a doubt, it was Breaking Bad before Breaking Bad. Chris went through the New Zealand Police Academy in Wellington when he was 20, which, funnily enough, was just a couple of months after myself, back in 1985. You'll hear what his origins were throughout the chat and understand how cases early on impacted him later in his career. Made it very clear to me that police can get things wrong and that they should let the evidence lead them to an offender. To kick off, Chris is taking us through a fascinating case involving the stabbing of two gang members in Auckland. Police received a call and arrived at the scene to find two men lying on the street. One was deceased and one was bleeding out. Chris took on the investigation, which turned into one of the country's most controversial The events that followed were shocking and gripped New Zealand for months. I was called out in the middle of the night. On the face of it, it looked like a really simple case. We had an address where there was gang members lived at. It was unusual that the gang members that lived at the address were black power gang members. And the party that was happening there had a mixture of black power and mongrel mob there, which is unusual, and normally those gangs don't mix. A uniform staff had been called to the address and it turns out one of the gang members from the party had been found stabbed to death on the road from the driveway and another had been stabbed and was in a serious condition and had been rushed to hospital. They were both Black Pair members and a ute had taken off from the address immediately after it with the mongrel mob members in it. So, I mean, to every cop, we were pretty certain. You know, everyone sort of straight away went, oh, yeah, the, the mobsters had a fight with the black power and they've stabbed the black power. So, you know, our focus immediately was to identify who the Munger mob members were and try and locate them. But got to do your basics right first. And one of the key basics of an inquiry is area inquiries. The sooner you do area inquiries, so that is going to every address within the vicinity of a crime, identifying who was at the address, what they were doing, and what they saw, is incredibly important. And you know, um, time and time again, I know that that has led to the identification of offenders in crime. But it also, when it's done badly, 
it has actually led to offenders getting away or not being identified as early as they could have been. So I made sure that even though we had two good suspects, we still did the basics of that investigation. As it unfolded, we located the two mongrel mob offenders. We again bugged their phones and bugged their associates' phones. And it was odd. They simply weren't talking or in a way that made you believe they were the offenders. They were consistent in the line that they'd gone outside and someone had disturbed them in a car and had attacked them. And we were able eventually, because he had seriously injured, speak to the second person that was stabbed, and he confirmed that story. He said, me and the deceased went out. There was a guy in, in hanging around the cars on the road. We went to talk to him, and he suddenly just stabbed us. So... We came to the conclusion that actually I think these people are telling the truth and it's not what it seemed. So we were able to go back over our files. It really left us, and I said right from the start of my briefings, we've got three options here. The most obvious is the mongrel mob have killed them. The second most obvious is that they've someone's been disturbed breaking into cars, you know, th- pretty common offence. Or the third is that a neighbour has reacted to something that's been going on in his neighbourhood probably the least likely we thought. But we went back over the the statements of all the neighbours and we identified a next-door neighbour, a man by the name of Dustin Lamont, young man. When we'd spoken to him, he'd said he was home and he was home with his girlfriend. Uh, but his girlfriend had said slightly different. She said, Dustin was out in the garage looking at spiders, which is all a little bit odd. So we dug down a bit deeper, and when we, what we were able to identify when we looked through our intelligence system is that Dustin Lamont had rung the police dozens of times complaining about the neighbours next door. He'd rung noise control complaining about the neighbours next door. He'd complained to his landlord and the next-door neighbour's landlord about the behaviour from next door. And he'd also posted multiple things on Facebook, uh, including a post or a tweet, I should say, saying, never have I been more provoked to go on a murderous rampage. So suddenly we realised, actually, maybe the least likely of the scenarios, the next door neighbour is actually a good scenario. When you interviewed the second uh, victim of the stabbing, who's obviously still alive, you would be thinking as a gang member or an affiliate with Black Power, he would be not wanting to come forward with too much information from the police. And if if it was his belief that it was Mongrel Mob, a competing gang who were responsible for this, he'd be thinking, well, we don't need the coppers to deal with this. We will deal with this on our own terms. So was there a little bit of that rolling through? Because he was there, he was present. Was he not saying too much? Because he would have been able to identify the offender, surely, as being this Lamont. But was he not particularly forthcoming with that information? Yeah, you're spot on there. You, you picked it up straight away. He wasn't forthcoming. He he wasn't trusting of police. He didn't want to make any statements originally. And in fact, we had to get the whanau of the deceased to talk to him and say, no, we'd like you to cooperate. Um, and and yes, we were very suspicious that he simply wasn't talking to us because he was going to arrange retribution against the other gang. It was quite some time down the track before we actually got him to tell us what occurred. And when you look at this Dustin Lamont, I've only seen photographs of him. You obviously met him. Um, he is not someone that you would look at. He is slightly built, very small, 
in using New Zealand terms, Pākehā, Caucasian uh, gentleman, who has, as it turns out, stabbed uh, two very large muscular members of uh, of one of the most notorious gangs in the country. This is not a guy when he opened his front door, Chris, that you would have thought, oh, here's, here's our man. No, nah, it certainly isn't, and he, and he certainly didn't admit it. When we went back over his and interviewed his girlfriend a second time, she was able to give more detail that he'd, he'd actually come back in from the garage and gone into the bathroom for multiple times. He'd shaved his goatee off and washed all his clothes. So, uh, But she hadn't told us that the first time around. And in fairness, I don't think she for a minute suspected that her boyfriend had anything to do with it. What we actually did with him, we we put him in a motel. Him and his said we're going to. We obviously think you're a suspect for this. We put him and his girlfriend in a motel for the night, and we go. Why we do a forensic examination of your home, but we bugged that motel room. So again, we put listening devices in the motel room, and we got well, full admissions that he had been the person responsible for the stabbing. The circumstances were still blurry, but you know, certainly he admitted that he had stabbed both those offenders. And when we re-interviewed him the next morning, he admitted that he'd stabbed them. He um, took us to where some of the knife was left. He'd dismantled the knife and thrown most of it away, but we were able to recover parts of it. But he said it was self-defence. That is what he took to the jury. And look, I, I come back to what I said right at the start. Our job's to identify all the evidence if that evidence leads to a suspect, you put that evidence in front of a court and you let the court decide. It was always going to be a good defence because the reality, as you've just described, is a, a rather skinny Pākehā against two large gang members. You know, I think it was always going to be a solid defence. Um, and he was actually acquitted of that murder. And my team were a bit disappointed, but as I made very clear to them, you've done your job. We kept the avenues open, we gathered every amount of evidence we could, we identified who was responsible for the stabbing, whether they were criminally responsible as a jury's decision. I mean, I personally think that if you had put the shoe on the other foot and one of those gang members had stabbed him and said they did it in self-defence, the jury wouldn't have believed him, but that's a jury's decision and, and I accept it. There's always two sides to every story, but you know, in the end that's what a jury's for. But as I say, I'm, I'm still proud of the team that we're able to put the correct evidence in front of a jury. The Theresa Cormack case was 1987, a tragic case. I was in the job at the time. A little six-year-old girl abducted, raped and murdered. Her body was found in a shallow grave at a beach in the Hawke's Bay by a, a woman who was walking her dog. Terrible, terrible case. The offender, a guy Jules Mekas, I think is the pronunciation, had actually been questioned by police quite early on in the investigation as a suspect. He had an alibi that checked out, and he wasn't actually caught or arrested until 2002, some 15 years later. There was quite a few lessons learnt from that. Can you just sort of chat to us about that just a little? Yeah, well, I think you know, anyone in New Zealand, you know, you, you mentioned the name Teresa Cormack, it immediately you know, brings a bell and everyone knows it. It was a, it was a, 
a horrific homicide in its own right, but it actually led to a change in society in New Zealand where people stopped letting their children walk to school. People decided it wasn't safe and it had a real impact on society and, and to a degree changed the innocent nature of New Zealand society. So it was certainly something that most New Zealanders know. But from a policing perspective, I learned an incredibly valuable lesson from it. And I was in Hawke's Bay when the reinvestigation of that inquiry started. And that was uh, led by a now deceased Detective Sergeant Brian Shab, who had actually worked on the original investigation as a detective back in 1987. And it was a breakthrough in DNA that allowed them to obtain a DNA profile from some old exhibits. So they then started to relook at the files and, and examine if there were any suspects and then start what's, what's known as a DNA phase where uh, trying to take DNA samples from all suspects, but in fact, in this case, we ended up taking them from nearly all males that were living in Hawke's Bay at the time that, that of the right age to have been a suspect. That's how wide it was going. But the interesting thing in this case was back in 1987, police had a very strong suspect and as they were, as far as they were concerned, this man was the offender. And when I turned up in, in Hawke's Bay in the um, mid-90s, worked in Napier, most of those detectives that had worked on that inquiry would tell you that this suspect was the offender and he was you know, so close to admitting it, but it was clearly him, they just couldn't quite prove it. Um, and in fact, tragically for that man, he was severely beaten by a mem- member of the public because of the fact the whole community knew he was the prime suspect. As it turned out, he wasn't the offender. Made it very clear to me that police can get things wrong and that they should let the evidence lead them to an offender, not f- get a suspect and then try and make the evidence fit that offender. So, you know, back when we, we looked at those files, we could see that there was a suspect called Jules Mekas and he fit profile-wise, a lot of the concerns that has just shortly before the the murder, his partner had left him, so well-known with sex offenders, a stressful event triggers offending. And also the day after the, the murder, he hand-painted his car. So you'd say, you know, hang on, this is some alarm bells. The problem was he had a alibi for the time of the alleged abduction. Uh, as it turned out, he was identified through DNA and and identified as the offender. And that led to examining some of the presumptions that people took. And one, the obvious one, was that T- Teresa was abducted walking to school. But in fact, his alibi finished at about 9.15. But what if, so clearly what had actually happened is Teresa had got to school and turned around and walked back home and was abducted half an hour to three quarters of an hour later than we presumed. Um, and that there blows his alibi out of the water. And so it was a good example to me and something I always meant is don't assume anything. If you can't prove it, don't assume it. And then you know, the obvious lesson I learned from that was you know, don't get tunnel vision. Don't find a suspect and decide that that's just the person. You've got to keep all avenues of inquiry open. Um, I'd learned it on a previous homicide that I had a small amount to do with many years before, and and this just reinforced it. And I took that into my career as a detective as I started to run homicides in my own right. Joseph Thompson was a sex offender in New Zealand, serial offender in 96, locked up through some DNA. But this would have been 
around the time, probably one of the first, certainly homicide cases solved through DNA and quite insightful, I think, Chris, that the lead detective at the time in 87, this is before DNA was really widely known about, took some and saved some samples, which some 14 years later were sent to the US. And it was through that sample saved at the crime scene that some 14 or 15 years later, it was able to identify the offender. Did, did I get that sort of correct? Yep, that, that's exactly what happened. Yeah. You know, um he kept ownership of, of the file for all those years. He knew that there was something that he hoped technology might catch up with down the track, and, and it did, and it led to the offender. Um, and there's a number of cases now that, that, that come to light and how important they are. And it just shows, as a detective, some of the most important work you can do is if you're in charge of a scene and in charge of exhibits, to make sure you do those scene examinations to the utmost detail you secure those exhibits, you secure them in a way that will preserve them and also preserve their integrity for evidential purposes so no one can say that those exhibits could have been contaminated and very important. Chris, I'd like to, if I could, take you back to 2003. You're a detective sergeant, Hawke's Bay, east coast of New Zealand, there in the North Island. You were the officer in charge of a nine-month investigation involving 30 officers, if my research is correct. It was the largest uh, the largest methamphetamine lab in New Zealand, um, actually been run by a high school science teacher at the time. So can you chat to us about this case and the role that you played in it? Yeah, th- this was actually Operation Shrek, we call this. Uh, as you, you, you might know, or you will know, but your listeners may not, that when police have an operation, we like to give it a, a code name, and then we like to give each of the offenders or the targets um, a nickname, say Operation Shrek was good, because there's lots of interesting characters in that movie, and we were able to give <laughs> each of the offenders a, an interesting name. But look, this was a really interesting case, and without a doubt, it was Breaking Bad before Breaking Bad. I watched the Breaking Bad series a number of years later. I thought it was really good, but amazed that actually we had that in real life before it was ever on television. So this was in the early days where methamphetamine production was just starting to take off in New Zealand. Uh, It was mainly in a, a relatively small numbers and small labs where people obtain pseudoephedrine through chemist shops buying the um, cold and flu remedies. Equally, they were realising that chemicals were needed to do this. So our Auckland Drug Squad had set up a chemical diversion program. So they identified through the importers where chemicals were being purchased that didn't seem to fit with a business. And They identified through that an unusual import of the main ingredient in MDMA or ecstasy. And so they they thought it was a bit bit odd, but the company it was going to was a very legitimate company. It was a tannery, a large tannery uh, in Hawke's Bay. But then they looked and followed it a bit further and saw there was a number of things that had suddenly in the last two years been ordered that had never been ordered before. And then they identified that actually they were being sent to an employee who, rather than to the company itself. So they contacted us and said, you know, do you know these people? What do you know about them? And uh, we didn't know a lot about them, but it was certainly suspicious. Um, so we started off by setting up a bit of a bit of surveillance on them. And we quickly identified that the offender, the, the person from the tannery, a guy called Adam McCarty, he was actually removing those chemicals from his work and taking them to an address in a, in a local suburb, just a, a residential suburb 
Um, so that started setting off alarm bells for us. We identified one of his close associates was um, a school teacher, his cousin by the name of Reuben Martin. Both were unknown to us. When we sort of did a bit of intelligence gathering on them, we certainly got no word that these were drug dealers, were drug, big drug suppliers. The only thing was Adam McCarty was suspected of drink spiking in local pubs. That was the only thing that sort of had come through that the girls in town knew to avoid um, McCarty when he was in the pubs. So what we did after a bit of surveillance and identifying this house, we did what was called a, a covert search warrant. So that's where you get a search warrant, but you do it covertly so no one knows you have been on the premises. It's a really, really good technique to gather intelligence without giving away that someone's a subject of investigation. I'm not giving any secrets away to say become very tricky these days with security. So, so many premises now have their own online security, their own video, CCT surveillance, everything. So it's quite difficult. But in those days, um, that was less likely. And we were able to do a covert search warrant. And we found in the rear of the garage of this address a significant clandestine laboratory. It was all set up. It was still operating. There were drugs actually going through a process at the time. And we were pretty excited that we were onto something pretty big. The challenge for us was that we were pretty inexperienced around clan labs at this time. And, and when the experts came and it, we showed them the photographs and everything we'd found, they were pretty clear that actually you can't keep this going. There's a school across the road and it could blow up at any time, which was from an investigator's point of view, a bit of a bugger because we really hadn't got that much evidence yet. But it was, uh, it was the right call and it was a call we had to make. So we did terminate on the laboratory and it was really interesting because it not only turned out that they were making and had been making significant amounts of methamphetamine, they also had been making MDMA, but they were actually too good at their job and the MDMA they were making was actually MDA. Now, that is a stronger strength than in fact what we call a class A drug. So the penalties for manufacturing are life imprisonment compared with MDMA, which is a class B drug, and the and the and the penalty for that is fourteen years imprisonment. So they'd put themselves into an even higher range of offending. So the unfortunate thing about this is they never really explain the whole setup for us. But we were able to go back and identify how long they'd been purchasing these chemicals. The scientists were able to identify that. They seem to have moved away from methamphetamine manufacture and more into the MDMA. And we identified the reason for that was the gangs had cottoned on to their supply of methamphetamine, had wanted to take control of them. And so they'd backed away from meth and gone back to uh, gone to more into the MDMA market, the ecstasy market, because they were able to deal those themselves or deal with them outside of um the, of the normal gang-controlled drug dealing that was taking place in the lower North Island at the time. So it was it was very interesting case. And as I say, um, the science teacher was the mastermind behind it. He had got all his skills through his science degree and he had applied those skills to make himself you know, significant amounts of money. And Chris, as officer in charge of the case, did you interview the science teacher following his arrest? Yes, I did. But I'd have to say, unfortunately, he uh, he was wise enough to take the most common defence. He, he contacted a lawyer and he, and he jammed up. So we didn't get a lot officially out of him. 
what we did get, he would say, this really started as a bit of an experiment. It was it was a bit of you know, let's see what we can do, and. Originally, they were supplying themselves a few friends and and passing them on for free around the pubs. And then they identified, actually, there's a hell of a market for this. And uh, I suppose a bit like a gambling habit, it just grew and grew till suddenly they were well out of their league. While he got a significant prison sentence, the reality is, as we saw as the whole clandestine laboratory and the manufacture of meth and labs grew in New Zealand, Cooks, as they were known, became pride and property, and the gangs would literally kidnap cooks, take control of their life, hold them for ransom, and force them to cook for them. And I can tell you that Reuben Martin would have been high-end value to a to a gang, and and I think he was very lucky that hadn't happened because clearly they cottoned on to that he was up to no good with methamphetamine. I think it was only a matter of time till he would have found himself completely in the tentacles of serious gang members. I'm interested in your thoughts, Chris, on that gang situation in New Zealand and approaches moving forward that you think would have some benefit. Yeah, it's certainly a, a, a significant problem in New Zealand. It's a problem that's growing. Um, you know, politicians are on board with it and, and having all sorts of says and you, know, you take everything with a grain of salt. But the reality is our gang numbers have grown by about 70% in the last five years. There's ethnic gangs and there's what you you call your outlaw motorcycle gangs. The challenge in New Zealand is the ethnic gangs, which are community, you know, they've grown up, they're intergenerational in many communities, especially provincial and rural New Zealand. It's not just a matter of saying they're all criminals and we're going to um, crack down on them because it's they are actually part of those communities and it's a lot more difficult. Don't get me wrong, they still commit a hell of a lot of crime and we need to deal with that. But they are a different kettle of fish than some of the outlaw motorcycle gangs. Also, what's changed dramatically is that the 501 deportee situation where the Australians deported a large number of their criminals to New Zealand, or our criminals, you might say. Depends which side of the yeah. fence in that argument they're on. But <laughs> what occurred there was they changed their gang scene and that some of your worst gang members turned up in New Zealand. They created either new gangs or they strengthened smaller gangs in New Zealand, started fighting for the drug trade, and they brought a level of violence we hadn't witnessed before. We were having execution-style shootings and hardened gang members in New Zealand were saying, this isn't us, this is the 501s, we don't op- operate like this. So it has changed our scene. So, yeah, look, we, we've certainly um, taken on some on board some of those lessons from Australia and those task forces, the strike forces, which have worked. I still think the biggest way for the outlaw motorcycle gangs is to tackle their assets. And there's been some big success in them. We've stripped a large number of assets off gangs like the Comancheros, the Rebels, the Mongols in recent times. And and if there's no profit in it, uh, it takes away that incentive. So it's really important to hit them there. We've got an election here in a couple of weeks. One of the parties that's likely to be in government is talking about a gang patch ban. It'll be interesting. The challenge with that is how you deal with 500 gang members who turn up at a, a what we call a tangi in New Zealand, but a funeral. What do you expect a thousand cops to turn up and take all their patches off them? You know, it's it's challenging as to how that legislation would work in New Zealand. But in saying that, I have some sympathy for the idea because without a doubt, gang members wearing patches have become very much an intimidatory part of New Zealand society. It, the public don't feel safe because of that explosion in gang numbers. So um, 
and then there's just the old-fashioned policing of them, the cracking down, and and that is not letting them get away with the minor stuff, so life becomes uncomfortable for them. You mentioned two gangs there, rebels and commentaries. Now, goodness, you know, growing up uh, New Zealand in, in the police, I was in the riot squad in Wellington for a couple of years. You know, we were dealing with uh, gangs there, mongrel mob, black power. That's, they still have a big presence, Sinn Féin, some of the others. The rebels, uh, the Comancheros, these were Australian-based gangs. And as you quite rightly said earlier, these have made their way into New Zealand from overseas. There, were, there was no rebel and Comanchero motorcycle gangs you know, that long ago. And now, as you say, quite rightly, you're, you, you know, you're faced with the growing numbers and attraction to those gangs and the drug trade and, and everything else. It's a, I guess the, the bottom line, Chris, is there's no one size fits all and um, it's, an, it's an ongoing issue, isn't it? Yeah, it is. I wish I had the answers to it because it is a big concern, um, but you're dead right. It has changed. And as you say, these gang members you'd never heard of, now they're the ones we're most concerned about, especially in relation to violence. Chris, I'm just going to get you to put your um, Police Association presence hat on for a moment. This this may come as a surprise to Australian listeners that New Zealand police don't actually carry firearms. And this is something that I've often found that folks that I know here in Australia are quite, their assumption would be, well, we carry firearms in Australia, every state and territory police are armed. New Zealand doesn't. I was in the job at a time where there was no firearms. If you were sent to a job where there was a suggestion that there could be a firearm present, it was a very old fashioned process. Chris, it's probably changed now where you'd actually go back to the station and you'd sign out a firearm in the presence of a senior sergeant and then make your way to the job. There were armed defenders squads, anti-terrorist squads that could be sent to jobs like that. Society has um, has evolved in good and bad ways, of course, since then. I know when I fly back into New Zealand now, Chris, uh, I note that at the airport, airport police um, are armed, uh, From certainly into, into Wellington Airport the last time I was there. What are your thoughts in your role about the whole question around police, arming police, police not carrying firearms? Where do you sit on that? Yeah, well, look, in, in utopia, it would be great for, for police not to have firearms and not to have to carry those firearms. But the reality in New Zealand is that we've got a significant problem with firearms crime, uh, a bigger problem than you have in Australia. Most of our gang members now carry firearms. There wouldn't be many nights to go by that there isn't a drive-by shooting or an armed robbery with a firearm that's reported to me across New Zealand and, and often multiple events. And so the view of younger officers certainly changed. And actually, we do a very comprehensive survey of our police, all, all police members every two years. And the consistently for the last few years, the general consensus for all, all star, constabulary staff, it's about 74% want to be generally armed. For some of those frontline units, especially the ones like road policing units that work alone, it's as high as 85%. And I can understand where they're coming from. It's fine for someone like me who's in bed at midnight to say, no, it's just a big change to society. I don't really want to do it, but I'm not the one at the pointy end of the danger that's out there. In saying that, look, there has been, there's a couple of things that are worth noting um, from an Australian perspective, audience perspective, is nearly all police cars in New Zealand carry two Glocks and two M4 rifles. So in some ways, we're better armed than Australian police who don't have access to long firearms that often. But of course, the challenge of that is if you don't know what you're confronting, it's too late to get it out of a car. But recently, we've also introduced what's known as a tactical response model. And that now has armed defenders trained staff working together 
uh, in a car with the ability to attend these firearms instances uh, um, at short notice. Or, or you know, so that's that's given an increased presence of armed officers that's that's been responded well to by members and makes them feel a bit safer. So it's not perfect, but it's it's a medium that's working. The New Zealand policing system very much based on the English uh, system too, um, where, you know, generally speaking in the UK, Met Police, what have you, don't carry firearms, the frontline policing, but then they do have certain units that, that do. I I suppose as things evolve, as, as we move forward, be it right, wrong or indifferent, there will be a time where, um, you know, police, frontline police New Zealand will, will carry firearms as, as they do here in Australia. I, I guess that's an evolutionary thing that will uh, at some point, you know, uh, finally occur. Yeah, it's the ironic thing is that a lot of people will say, oh, you know, we don't want to be armed like Australian police. It changes the relationship with the communities and everything. But the reality is because I believe you grow up in Australia knowing a police officer has a gun on their hip, one, you get used to it, it doesn't worry you too much. And two is, as an offender, you know if I attack a, an officer with a weapon, be it a knife or, a, or something like that, he's got a gun to shoot me. Whereas in New Zealand, they don't expect the officers to have a gun. And when it's actually produced it normally ends in a more serious confrontation because the officer, uh, the offender wasn't expecting the officer to be armed. And, and on a per head of population basis, it's unfortunate that more police officers in New Zealand are shot and more police officers have to use their firearms to, to use lethal force than in Australia. And so, you know, it's not as, it's not as perfect as it sounds not carrying firearms. Chris, it's been such a great pleasure to meet with you and have a chat, and thank you for joining us there in the studio in in Wellington, New Zealand. You're our first guest who's still currently serving as a police officer, and just wanted to wish you all the very best as you continue on your career, and that seven years that you've been the president of New Zealand Police Association, that that continues. A long and distinguished career serving the good people there of uh, New Zealand. I want to thank you so much for your ongoing service, and, uh, and thank you for taking time out of your busy schedule to have a chat to us. Thanks very much. Enjoyed the conversation. Crime Insiders Detectives is a listener original production. It's hosted by me, Brent Sanders, produced by Ed Gooden, and sound designed and imaged by Link Kelly.